we invested in Flexport, we made a direct and immediate donation to the Flexport.org fund. Um, and that money went immediately to support one of UNICEF's first shipments of medical supplies to Ukraine. And for us, this is meaningful because we were able to put the money to work almost immediately. Uh, not like, hey, we're going to donate to this to you and, and hopefully it will get used in the next year or two. This was uh, kind of used immediately. Um, and it was powerful because um, you, you technically could have donated to UNICEF and it probably would have gone to a similar place. But by donating to a for-profit business, and you don't donate to a for-profit business, but in donating to a nonprofit arm of a for-profit business that can really move quickly, that have resources ready to go, we were really able to kind of uh, garner the movement of these goods a lot more quickly. Welcome to episode 38 of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur, here to learn how innovators are creating outsized transformational social impact. Today's episode features Casey Lundquist Ryder, co-founder and general partner at Rise Together Ventures, a venture firm investing in high-growth, for-profit companies led by mission-driven founders. They help portfolio companies use their resources to create meaningful social impact. Casey and I discuss her time living in the Netherlands, her finance and operations background, and how she got into profit for purpose and helping companies affect change, among much more. Here is Casey Lundquist Ryder on People Are the Answer. Casey, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Could you start off just by telling us who you are, where you're based, and what your current role is? Yes. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm based in Santa Barbara, California, which is where I grew up. Um, after spending some time in LA, Chicago, New York, and Amsterdam, happy to be back home in California. Um, and my current role is GP or general partner of Rise Together Ventures. And what would you say motivates you in general? Um, I am like a classic pretty type A operator. Um, and so honestly, like just getting things done when I was a little kid, I would like redo my parents and my closets all of the time, just because it gave me such satisfaction to like actually do something that had kind of like an immediate effect and you could see the Im immediate outcome. So that was always kind of the basis. Someone always asked me like a long time ago, when I was little, if, if you could do have any job in the world, what would it be? And I, I joked around saying I would honestly like love to organize closets. There's just no money in it, so I can never do it. And then um, this company called The Home Edit came out several years after that. I was like, wow, they figured out how to make a lot of money organizing closets. <laughs> so no, they really did. Like a little bit of a random answer, but you know, if I had to choose like one thing to do that would keep me up all night, it would honestly be reorganizing people's closets. <laughs> I love that. Um, and where did you grow up and what was it like there? I grew up in Santa Barbara, California, um, in a pretty idyllic place. This is, um, especially during COVID has really kind of been discovered in a way it is, um, has the backdrop of a large mountainside that allows for amazing, beautiful hikes. It's right on the water. So I actually can walk to the beach with my kids after work every day, which is really, beautiful. The weather is almost perfect. It's, it's like 
a stupidly wonderful place to grow up and uh, to live. I'm very lucky. Yeah, um, absolutely. Certainly been to that area of the country. It's beautiful. And um, so it sounds like you've spent a lot of your time there. Um, I know you went to Duke, so that that took you away for a little bit. Yeah, I was the first time I I left Santa Barbara. I thought everywhere looked like Santa Barbara. Um, And then all of a sudden I got to the South and they had seasons and it got cold and there were different colors and different, uh, you know, clothing that was needed. Um, so yeah, that was my first time kind of entree to the, to the East coast. And after that, I moved to New York for several years, um, kind of slowly started shifting back to California, hot stopped in Chicago for a couple of years to get my MBA and then, um, spent about five years in Amsterdam. So I've really kind of lived oh, cool. all over, um, experiencing a lot of different cultures, a lot of different weather. Um, Santa Barbara, I think is, uh, takes the cake for for best place right now. Yeah. Uh, people that, you know, love where they grew up, I totally get going back, but I think it's important that you took that time to go explore some other things. And, you know, what would you say you sort of took back with you to Santa Barbara in terms of your learnings? Great question. A hundred percent agree with you that it's so important to, to get out of your comfort zone and to leave wherever you grew up and explore some other opportunities. And Duke was definitely kind of the, the entry point for me to do that. I had such a wonderful experience at Duke just because I was around a lot of other students who did not come from California. And I had such an amazing time getting to know their backgrounds and their cultures and their family lifestyles. Um, I really wanted to continue exploring that, which is why I think I kept like continuing to, to move place instead of moving back home. Um, I would say the international experience was pivotal in that um, it really, I went abroad a lot during college and traveled um, a lot during business school, but there's something different about uh, living in a, a different place. Uh, the struggles you face, like the operational and admin and government struggles you face moving to the Netherlands are are heavy. But once you've made it, it's a it's a it's a wonderfully um, kind of like utopian society. There's less than 20 million people who live there, so it's it's um, a, a different type of like to to lead the Netherlands versus leading the United States is a completely different job, but um, it was, you know, it's filled with expats. When I lived there, technically the center of Amsterdam, um, the number of expats living in the center of Amsterdam eclipsed the number of Dutch folks who, who actually lived in Amsterdam. So it's a really kind of a true melting pot, um, a wonderfully safe criminal free, uh, area. There are almost next to no homeless folks. Um, no one, no one has to be homeless in the Netherlands. You, you pay large taxes, for all of these benefits, but, um, you know, comparing to California these days is actually not hugely different. And, um, living in the Netherlands, you have access to, you know, just unend like unending numbers of, of really safe, beautiful parks, um, free education, free, pretty much free healthcare. Um, just kind of like an amazing, you know, more of a, a uh, kind of building on socialism in more of a way, but, um, you know, still having a ton of entrepreneurs, a ton of creative minds there that are really kind of building for the best. And they really um, have a different perspective on life. And it's, it's not so much you live to work, but you, um, you work to live. And, and so that's, that was a really interesting dynamic coming from, you know, like heavy finance in New York, and then all of a sudden going to the Netherlands, where truly at five o'clock, people sign off, they walk out the door, um, because they have a life that they want to leave to live and they're, you know, they're not, they're not looking to, um, to work forever. So that was, it was a good learning for me and kind of forced me to take a step back and really kind of like 
pause and enjoy the moment rather than heads down kind of burning the burning Excel at midnight every night. <laughs> Very interesting in terms of your time in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch back on that in a bit, but what did you study at Duke and what drove you into finance? I was uh, really, really boring. So I started out as a, <clears throat> I wanted to be a chem major. I liked chem, I was a chem dork in high school. And so I decided to take, I decided I, I somehow tested out of the entry um, chem classes. And so I started organic chemistry. It was, was my first class I took at Duke and it was like eight thirty three days a week. And it was like the worst decision I've ever made from a college standpoint. I don't know why my college counselor allowed a freshman to take Orco three times a week as your freshman. Um, so I decided I, I no longer wanted to become a chem major. I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it anyways, pre-med probably, uh, flipped, flip sides and um, went the econ route because it felt safe and felt like there were a lot of kind of possibilities coming from that foundational um, space. So I chose that as my major. I wasn't super interested in it, to be honest. I was more interested in psychology. So I ended up doing psychology as my minor, as a passion, more of based on my passion, but econ more based on my um, right brain, trying to be pragmatic about the future and getting a job post-college. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair perspective to have and one that I'm sure served you well. And it looks like coming out of college, you had a variety of interesting positions before you, um, you know, went over to the Netherlands. Uh, what was that process like in sort in terms of getting into sort of that corporate finance and operations world? Yeah, I'd say my background is split half finance, half operations. I started out um, classic investment banking role out of college, did that for a couple of years switched to private equity, um, did that for a couple of years, and then decided to go back and get my MBA because I wanted to try something new, more creative, but honestly had no idea what that looked like. I was kind of like a classic lost, you know, early 20s, not sure what I want to do with my life, um, but have a lot of possibilities. So hopefully I can take a couple of years off and figure it out at business school. I wouldn't say I necessarily figured it out, but I got to experiment a lot. And that's the beauty of business school is you get to do take interesting classes um, that that isn't like I need to take this class so I can get a job post-college, but I can take this class because it interests me. And I figure, and I've kind of gotten to know my strengths a little bit better. You can intern. Um, uh, and I did that a lot. I really took advantage of the time to to actually intern with, with both um, venture firms and startups to figure out where I might want to go post-college. Um, I decided I wanted to do operations at a startup post business school, which coming from, you know, investment banking and private equity, I'm, it's like the last person people want to hire. And so, um, <laughs> right. I ended up I, just like, you know, the fear of being too expensive or, you know, not having the right skill set. So I ended up working, uh, for a friend of a friend who'd won the UCLA business school competition for her startup, um, which was basically rent the runway for bridesmaids dresses. And I was at the peak of my you know, being a bridesmaid, I'm like, this is genius. I spend so much money buying bridesmaids. Why am I doing bridesmaids dresses? I should just rent them for a, a fraction of the cost. And so I felt really, um, I felt a close connection to the vision and the mission of the company. So I joined um, her, spent several years there building up the company. And that was my first entree really into both venture and startups, because as part of my role there, it was an early stage company. I was actually able to help the founder raise several rounds of, of um, venture uh, 
capital. And that was that was so interesting to see from the founder side of the table versus the investing side of the table, which I was really used to. So I really did everything. I, you know, I, I stuffed boxes of dresses, I steamed dresses. I went to investor meetings. Uh, we ended up growing the team to about uh, a little less than 30 people, um, had a wonderful run. The company ended up not being able to raise enough money to keep going. It's a very capitally intensive business. If you've read any articles about the rent the runway, you know, they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they're still, you know, tuning around profitability or maybe they are profitable now, but it's, yeah. it's a tough business. It's a, it's a necessary one, but you really need to achieve scale to become profitable. And that just costs a lot of money. Um, but uh, wonderful uh, educational experience. I would say I moved to Amsterdam after that um, and got to work at two, I would call scale ups, which I decided at that point that, you know, um, it was really helpful kind of having the like the resources and the financial backing of a bigger company in order to get your job done versus really having to be so scrappy every single day to get things done when you're at a, a true startup that's kind of like series A and below. Right. Um, that said, I'm sure this this scrappy mindset, like those multiple years you had in that definitely helped a lot. A scrappy mindset. And I'm also like inter- inherently an extremely frugal person. And so... Those two things. I'm sure the companies appreciated that. They did. They definitely did. (laughs) So does my husband. I'm curious, did you decide to go to Amsterdam and that's when you found a job there or was it job first and like, will you move? Uh, First, my husband needed to move there for his job. Got it. Uh, So it came up relatively abruptly and we we needed to move. And so I didn't have a job when I first moved there. I was was still kind of like half working and consulting for um, the bridesmaid dress company while I was out there. And then ultimately kind of networked my way into a company called Flexport. Um, I was the number 13th employee in Amsterdam. They now have an office of about 300 people. I think the company has know, 2000, 2000, um, people working at it or something, uh, wonderful company had a great, a great, um, kind of like next step in my career there of working for a bigger company, really working for, uh, a grown up company, I would say, and, and learning how to, how to frame conversations, make decisions using data, um, manage people. That was, that was, I'd managed people at Val, but I, I didn't really, have a chance to kind of grow my own team and, and learn from um, other really solid managers. So that was a really uh, like wonderful kind of, you know, career defining uh, couple of years for me where I learned from some really, really, really smart people who, um, you know, I, I still look back on today and, and use a lot of the things that I, I learned from them to, uh, to do my job today. And we will we'll dig in later to your current role, but Flexport is one of your current portfolio companies, right? Yeah, it's like, I think part of the reason why it was such an easy decision is because I had worked there. And so not only had I seen the management at work and really how the product um, had such great product market fit with their clientele, but I got to know their kind of impact arm and I wasn't really involved in it, but um it's not something that you like read about. You don't read about Flexport's impact arm very often. And so I don't think I ever would have known that, that it existed had I not actually worked there. Um, so I'm glad I did in order to become a, an investor now. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll dig a little more into that in a bit, but, um, you know, after Flexport, 
looks like you went to a, a company that a lot of us have heard of, Bird, the scooter company, right? Yeah. So that was, <clears throat> I joined um, when Bird had just opened their Amsterdam office. A lot of, you'll see that a lot of uh, companies have headquarters in Amsterdam. That's for tax reasons. So Bird actually never and, and likely will never operate in Amsterdam. So you won't see any scooter, electric scooters. They're not legal uh, for a variety of reasons in Amsterdam, but because of tax reasons, they're, they're still headquartered there, but we had operations all over, um, all over Europe. Um, and so I was, it, it was, I joined at kind of like the peak of their darlingness. You know, they were the fastest growing company to hit a billion dollars. Um, you saw their scooters all around LA. I was lucky enough to try them out. And I, you know, like I really, again, believed in the product. I, it's it, when I think about going to Paris or going to LA now without having an electric scooter nearby, like it, my trip would be very different. Um, and so that was an interesting. I've used them in a variety of markets myself, my wife and I, and various trips, and they can really add a, a fun element and also a convenience element to getting around. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's especially in LA where to get in your car, to get an Uber is, is such a pain that, and you have really good weather out there. It's, it's a really nice um, kind of other option for getting around. Uh, if, if you happen to be going from point A to point B that aren't too far away from each other. And what was your role there? So I was there for a couple of years there. So I ran our, um, I ran our vehicle operations team for EMEA, which means um, there's a team that designs the scooters. Uh, there's a supply chain team that makes sure that the scooters that are designed and manufactured in China actually hit our warehouse in Rotterdam or Germany or wherever our warehouse was were. Um, and then from that point, they, they're, we call them where they're born, essentially, they're taken out of the box and they're turned on and they're born and they're under my purview until um, they essentially die or need to be recycled. Um, and so figuring out how we can not only move the scooters around most efficiently, but how can we how can we improve our unit economics? Because we're we're on the cost side of things. We're not on the revenue generating side of things. So how can we um, deliver, uh, collect, repair uh, and place our scooters in areas uh, where we can get the most bang for our buck and um, and really kind of decrease the cost of operating uh, a business. I'm sure that was quite the logistical experience. Quite the logistical experience. Uh, again, working for a startup, you kind of have like, and especially one that just raised a lot of money, we had the opportunity to experiment. So we got to run um, a variety of uh, kind of experimental programs um, this is where like both econ and psychology kind of kicked in because there's the econ side of things where you're thinking about the numbers, but when you're dealing with, um, you know, a, a type of, especially across a variety of cultures in different communities and different, um, uh, different countries, it's really interesting to understand like what motivates people to do their job. And it really, we had a lot of interesting conversations about how to figure out how we can motivate people to to pick up the highest number of scooters they can and on a per hour basis how can we encourage them to repair these scooters as quickly as possible like how can we make them feel um, just as invested in this business as as we are so that was a really kind of interesting um, way of doing things and there were some people who you know immediately weren't weren't going to be accretive to the business and then there were others who were really special um, folks who who ended up becoming kind of leaders in their countries because of their ability to, to motivate, uh, you know, the, the people who are working for them. 
Got it. I'm, I'm sure you learned an incredible amount and took that with you when you went back to California. And what was that transition like going from having been in the Netherlands for years to going back to California? Yeah. So I ended up having, I got kind of surprised pregnant on my second and uh, wanted to give birth in California because it was COVID and uh, there was so many unknowns during that time that uh, we came back here and kind of ultimately got stuck. Um, and it was during, um, you know, my maternity leave that I started thinking about ways that I could give back to my community now that I've moved back home. Um, now that I've had a couple kids, I really wanted to kind of get involved in giving back. And so I spent some time, uh, thinking through, uh, you know, charity on my side, either volunteering money or time or some type of service. And I got really deep into it. I, especially because I was on maternity leave on your second, you start getting antsy a little bit earlier uh, than on your first, because you've got things down to a science now and you know how to do it. Um, and so I spoke to hundreds of people in my network in the nonprofit charity and for-profit space just to understand how they viewed it. I did a lot of site visits uh, on, um, on these nonprofits, talking to the executive directors and talking to kind of the, um, the directors uh, on specific locations to understand what are their impact metrics? How do they measure success? That was, you know, a question you always ask coming from the for-profit world. What are your success metrics and how are you going to measure them? And how often are you going to measure them? And what are you going to do if they go in different directions? And I was slightly underwhelmed on people's ability to respond to that like very basic question. And also um, the time it took them to respond. You get an email from someone uh, kind of like saying, Hey, I'm a potential donor. Like, I'd love to learn more. And it would take several weeks to even get a response to those types of emails. And, and so, you know, there is no nonprofit that's not short staffed. And there's, there's a variety of problems that are associated with the nonprofit world just because of how they work. Um, but I became a little bit jaded and I want to figure out, you know, how can we apply some of the sensibilities and the characteristics uh, and kind of like the mindset of the for-profit world into the nonprofit world. And I got a little bit obsessed with, 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 digging in and learning about, you know, for-profits that have kind of operated within the nonprofit domain and how they've um, been able to give uh, their skill sets and how they've given back, you know, they don't need to be Coca-Colas that have made a huge amount of money and have huge foundations, but anyone can give back. You and I can give back. We can take time and go volunteer our time. Um, it's just kind of the, the willingness to do so. And and figuring out what's the low-hanging fruit and like what's the most efficient way coming from my operations background, like what's the most efficient way for these companies to to actually give back and how can we make um, these nonprofits more efficient, more efficient and kind of more impactful as a result. That's a really interesting area to tackle. It's something I think about a lot, just the nonprofit versus for-profit. And to me, like the bottom line lately that I've been thinking is, shouldn't necessarily be about non or for profit, it should be about sustainable, you know, organizations, organizations that can sustain themselves, ideally, where I feel like there's so many designated nonprofits that spend such an incredible amount of their time asking for money, that they don't end up getting to spend enough time on the work. And yet, some people see for profit as like an, an evil term. And the fact is, you, it really depends on what you're doing with those profits. You know, you can invest those in an impactful and meaningful way, and you can have for-profit businesses that are much more impactful than nonprofit businesses. Yeah, it's. Uh, I totally agree, and, and 
what do you, when you think about it, the only reason that, well, not the only reason, but a reason that nonprofits exist and why people donate to them is because of the IRS has a tax code associated with that, where you get some tax benefits. And so I think there's a lot of people here that would rather, you know, invest their money in for-profit businesses from an impact perspective. But if they want to get that, that, you know, lucrative tax benefit, they need to focus their efforts on nonprofits. And, and that's not an area that I feel like changing or fighting. That's just how it is. And that's how it's going to be. So um, it's really about figuring out how we can connect the two worlds in, in a way because nonprofits have like amazing skill sets. They have resources. They've, they exist for a reason. Um, and there's definitely a, there's a huge subset of our community that will need nonprofit dollars that can't be helped by the for-profit businesses. But that doesn't mean that there can't be further collaboration between the two worlds. Um, and and uh, that's kind of what we're, we're trying to figure out is, is how we can make that happen more frequently in the nonprofit uh, and for-profit domains. I think that's a really interesting and important perspective. And so the, the studies in these areas led to your current endeavor, Rise Together Ventures? Exactly. Yeah. So I was uh, talking to a family friend kind of about my frustrations uh, and, and just kind of the the discrete differences between the two worlds uh, and how they operate. And granted, this is all like, there's so many different types of nonprofits. There's some nonprofits I've gotten to know that are led by, you know, the former CEOs of major, major corporations, and they're run just like a for-profit business. And they're, you know, they, they're extremely impactful. They're metric oriented. Uh, they drive every dollar as, as far as they can. A lot of them actually can actually like figure out a way to subsist on their, their own and their donation dollars is just going towards growth. But if they were to cut off donations, they could continue to exist and be partners to the people that they help. Um, those are really, really amazing nonprofits. Um, and so everything I say isn't to dissuade people from in donating to nonprofits because there is a world. It's just how can we make them, you know, um, better at, at what they, what their core set skill sets are not. Um, and so uh, I was, I was talking to a family friend about how we could connect the two together, and we. We toyed for several months on kind of some ideas, talked to a lot of folks to get the feedback, and ultimately landed on uh, a strategy, tra strategy um, which is uh, a hybrid venture and philanthropy fund. Um, I come from the venture world. Uh, I come from the startup world. My partner comes from both the philanthropy and the venture world. He spent some time uh, serving on the board of Homeboy Industries, which is a very large nonprofit in Los Angeles. Um, focused on helping the formerly incarcerated re-enter into the workforce. Um, but we, we had similar kind of frustrations. And so we're experimenting and this is by no way have we, have we figured out this model completely, but we've gotten some really like positive, surprisingly positive feedback from the first invest few investments we've done that there is a huge desire in the pre IPO kind of company world that they want to figure out how to give back, but it's just not something that is is widely done yet. It's not something that they talk to investors about when they're raising money, and, and they have you know fourteen other fires that they kind of have to to um, to burn out every single day. And so it's uh, uh, but there's there's so much energy around being able to leverage what they're good at in order to do good in the world. And I think that the specific type of 
person who becomes a founder and the people who work at these nonprofit or sorry, at these startups have so much energy and are so creative and are so willing to kind of like run through walls to solve problems. Like those are the types of people that I want to be giving money to in order to solve society's biggest ills. Yeah, that makes sense. So what did you sort of come up with as the thesis for Rise Together Ventures and how has that sort of resulted? Yeah. So <clears throat> the idea is that we, uh, as, a, as an integrated or a hybrid venture and philanthropy firm, we become kind of a full stack partner to our portfolio companies. We we look to invest in portfolio companies that are going to have higher ROI, like we need to get paid. We want to invest in companies that will be enduring companies that will, you know, either, yeah, it, they'll be around in the next 20, 20 years. Um, but we look for companies that are being led by entrepreneurs and founders who want to give back um, to the world in some way. So we call them purpose-driven or purpose-led uh, founders. We uh, simultaneously work with them uh, to figure out how we can jumpstart or catalyze their impact program. Perhaps they already have one going uh, and with additional philanthropic dollars, we can kind of help that move farther or faster or grow. Um, some of these might have ideas of what they would want to do from an impact perspective. Maybe they already have, um, you know, let's donate our the time, our employee time. So they might have some volunteer days, but they don't have the resources or the, or the budget to actually um, kind of form a, a formal partnership with a nonprofit. And so that's where we come in. We can kind of help them take that next step. It's kind of world is our oyster of how we can help companies. Um, but the nexus is that we become a, a partner both on the on the philanthropic side and then also on the equity side. Um, I would note that we started out, um, you know, we wanted to prove out two hypotheses and that was, can we get into deals that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get into with this two-pronged approach? Um, and then can we, more importantly, can we, can we find more, interesting, unique, and impactful ways of putting our LPs philanthropic dollars to work. And so our fund is, you can kind of think of it as a two-pocket thinking type of fund. One of our pockets is a bread and butter venture firm. The other pocket is a, you can kind of think of it as a foundation. It's essentially a pooled DAF. Uh, and we leverage both, both dollars, both types of dollars um, when we work with our, our portfolio companies. And, and on the philanthropic side, do you have a way that you guys are currently measuring the impact of your portfolio companies? It's a great question. Um, I'm going to tell you why we've kind of pivoted since from them, from our original hypothesis and, and how we've landed and how we, how we look at um, how we measure our success metrics as it relates to impact. So we started out... Um, we needed to prove in that we, we we needed to prove our, to ourselves that we could get into deals that we wouldn't otherwise be able to get into. That became like overwhelmingly clear and um, knock on wood, like we've we've pretty much gotten into every single deal uh, that we've wanted to, um, which was a surprise I think to everyone involved. I I think we we knew we had some good product market fit. But we didn't know it was as solid as we could. Um, but what we've noticed is that once the founder has kind of closed that round and we would usually come in at the end of a round as frictionless follow-on strategic capital. And then we work with the founders or um, the right member of the executive team or whomever they wanted to put in the spot. 
um, to actually come up with and execute on the philanthropic mirror, or that's the philanthropic side of the equation that we want to work on. What we found is that um, over time, things get in the way. Um, we also started investing in earlier stage companies versus later stage companies. And I can go into why we've shifted towards later stage more. Um, but we found that it <clears throat> it got harder to actually execute and implement the philanthropic strategy. So we've shifted our focus a bit more now that we know we can kind of become a full stack equity partner with these companies if we find the right the right founder who understands and values our model. Um, we really want to start by focusing on the philanthropic piece. And that what that allows us to do is really get to know the the team that we're investing in and, and understanding kind of how they work. Um, and if it seems like a good fit from a portfolio portfolio perspective, we can then cut an equity check um, during their, their next round. We've had several portfolio companies actually um, ask their board to let us into their prior round, which has been really kind of, again, a, uh, uh, an amazing, um, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm trying to say? It's It's been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful proof point for us um, when we were building out our hypothesis of, can we get into these deals? And it's like, yes, we can get into these deals. And we actually can be led into deals that have already been closed if, if um, the founder really sees the value in us. So um, that just means that we've, we've made more, at this point, we've made more equity investments than we have the philanthropic side of things. Um, for the philanthropic side of things, we look at a few different things as we're measuring. And because every partnership is different, we don't have what, quote unquote, like a menu of options. Uh, we really kind of partner differently with every single company because every company is at a different stage, have different capabilities and has different wants and needs. But we look at a few different things. A, can we um, formalize a new partnership with a nonprofit that, that was not already um, in place before? B, how can we uh, uniquely support these companies to leverage their current capabilities to do good in the world? So um, companies, for-profit businesses provide a service or a product to a certain kind of community or a certain, uh, a certain uh, personality. How can, we, how can we shift that slightly so you're serving an underserved community or um, you're leveraging what you're good at to help a nonprofit be better at what they're, what they're kind of focused on? Um, and so it's, it's trying to measure like how can we increase the efficiency or level of impact that, um, uh, that uh, other nonprofits are probably trying to tackle in that space. Um, and, and the third one is kind of like deal by deal. Let's create a set of success metrics uh, to, to really put a, a data mindset around whatever problem you're trying to tackle. So some of our partnerships have been, let's start a program and let's see how enduring this program can be. Some of them are more project-based to understand. Um, here's a really specific problem. Maybe it's a disaster relief program that's um, tied to a recent natural disaster. Like how can we how can we measure where those dollars are immediately going and how can we quickly move those dollars, which might take a little bit longer when, you know, you're donating on a, an end of year basis. And so that's really just going to help solve these nonprofits kind of general operating budgets. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a way to, to kind of move, move these nonprofit dollars to attack some problems right now and, and right kind of at the, at the time they're needed. 
No, it's, it's a really interesting way to go about it. And I appreciate you sharing the details. Are, are there any specific examples that you want to share to sort of demonstrate a scenario where this sort of happened? Yes. Um, I can share. So, so, uh, I can share the flex port story cause that's always a good one. Um, because they're a little bit later stage and they're very much later stage on their journey of becoming a, a true kind of impact player in their space. Um, so when you think about Flexport, they, for those of you who don't know what Flexport is, Flexport is a digital freight forwarder, meaning they help companies move goods from point A to point B. So if you're wearing Allbirds or if you have some Sonos speakers that uh, you may have, you know, Flexport likely had a role in, in getting those items to you. So they're really good at transportation, let's say, or, or uh, organizing transportation. Then you have uh, nonprofits like UNICEF or Salvation Army, which are really good at uh, garnering donations and um, you know helping those in times of need during times of disaster. And they have a, a, a wide range of doing things, but they have a great network of, um, of companies that donate supplies to those in times of need. Well, usually the folks who are donating supplies are not located in the same place as the people who need the supplies. And so those supplies need to get there somewhere. And so usually UNICEF or Salvation Army is figuring out a way to get those supplies there. And they'll partner with, you know, UPS or FedEx or, uh, um, you know, their transportation partners to get them there. Um, Flexport is really good at transport transporting things. So wouldn't it be interesting if we, instead of UNICEF and Salvation Army transporting these items, that Flexport came in and said, hey, let us transport some medical supplies for you. Really good at transporting things. We're probably more efficient. We probably get better rates and we can probably do it more quickly. So why don't we just take that piece of your um, kind of uh, piece of the supply chain puzzle of doing what you do best. Uh, and so they created a, a fund called Flexport.org and they do exactly that. They help transport, you know, medical, so medical supplies and other, you know, goods that are needed during times of need and during times of natural disasters. Um, and what that looked like from our perspective is uh, when we invested in Flexport, we made a direct and immediate donation to the Flexport.org fund. Um, and that money went immediately to support one of UNICEF's first shipments of medical supplies to Ukraine. And for us, this is meaningful because we were able to put the money to work almost immediately. Uh, not like, hey, we're going to donate to this to you and, and hopefully it will get used in the next year or two. This was uh, kind of used immediately. Um, and it was powerful because um, you, you technically could have donated to UNICEF. And it probably would have gone to a similar place. But by donating to a for-profit business, and you don't donate to a for-profit business, but in donating to a nonprofit arm of a for-profit business that can really move quickly, that have resources ready to go, we were really able to kind of uh, garner the movement of these goods a lot more quickly. Um, and so it just goes to show that this is this is like, to me, a beautiful partnership that the Flexport.org fund partners with a lot of nonprofits that have resources that they don't have, but how can Flexport flex their muscles of what they're really good at to help these nonprofits uh, in interesting ways? And there's so many pieces of nonprofits of, of what they're trying to solve where for-profit businesses can step in. And when you, when you actually take a step back and think about how for-profit nonprofits operate, 
a lot of these nonprofit dollars are actually going to for-profit businesses. You know, nonprofits still need resources and whatnot. So, um, you know, these nonprofit dollars are still going to go pay UPS and FedEx and and whomever they work with. I, I actually don't know who, you know, these these uh, UNICEF and Salvation Army work with. So, this is just kind of surmising. But, um, you know, like let's 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 figure out the uh, the nonprofit the for profit businesses that really want to truly partner and and can figure out their own way. So so Flexport.org actually. Uh, has donations. And so they take that entire supply chain piece. Not only do they move the goods, but they actually pay for the movement of goods. So that's just something that's off the plate of, of UNICEF and Salvation Army, you know, completely. Sounds like a beautiful partnership, a great example. And um, I read a blog post that you did on Flexport and on, you know, what's going on uh, in this situation. And I like that you said, it's not what most people would consider a classic impact company, the way they might an ed tech or a health company. But that doesn't mean they can't do a lot of great work and a lot exactly. of good. Um, I thought that was an astute point and that people need to sort of change their, open up their minds in terms of what can be impactful. Exactly. I like to po- uh, point to Postmates, um, which is now owned uh, by Uber, but they were one of the originals. Flexport, I would say, is kind of in that bucket too one of the more impactful for-profit startups or, you know, pre-IPO companies that started really trying to think through how they can leverage their product and service to do good in the world. Again, like they're, they weren't profitable, so they don't have the ability like the Coca-Cola's or Starbucks of the world to take their profits and create a foundation and and donate to, you know, areas in need. Um, But they have a ton of other resources. And if you you know, put your mind to it, you can come up with creative strategies to make those uh, resources doubly impactful. And so um, one, they created an impact, their impact arm is called Civic Labs. uh, And one of the programs that they created was, um, if you high level, if you you were to sit and brainstorm and think, okay, we're Postmates, what, like, what are the resources and and, um, assets that we have here? Well, we've got a a great product that allows uh, food to be either delivered or picked up. We've got a great engineering team. We've got an amazing network of restaurants uh, who are delivering to those in the community. And then from um, kind of the need side, there's a lot of people in these communities that that um, can't afford to eat or have families that you know aren't, aren't able to feed their families the proper nutrition and food that they need. And then you also have restaurants that are throwing away a bunch of food every day. Like, how can we solve this problem using all of these resources and assets? Um, so they came up with this amazing product, which was just a spinoff of their existing pickup product. But they're, they're, they've got an engineering team. So that's something that a lot of nonprofits don't have access to, or they have to spend a lot of money to, to hire an agency to build something. But they've got this, this engineering team, and they tweaked their um, existing pickup product. Uh, and basically created um, uh, a, um, a solution whereby uh, you know certain nonprofits and and homeless shelters could be connected to companies, uh, sorry, to restaurants that had too much food and needed to get rid of it every single day, uh, and those nonprofits and homeless shelters could come pick up the food, um, or actually. Uh, a lot of times Postmates would actually deliver the foods to these homeless shelters, uh, which is to me like such a beautiful example of your, you know, Postmates isn't recreating the wheel in any way. They've, they've got a delivery product 
they've got partnerships with participating restaurants with food. Well, let's just get the food and give those to, instead of throwing it in the trash every way, give it, give it to those um, in need who could use them. So I, I love those types of examples where it's just like such a clear win all around. Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. They're using the resources they do have to build these efficiencies into the impact and it, it makes a big difference. Yeah, exactly. You're mentioning of Postmates and, you know, obviously they're being owned by Uber now. It does bring a question to mind. So, you know, let's say you're getting in into a company, um, you know, how do you put measures in place to ensure that it's going to maintain its vision and ethics long term, you know, especially as they reach a point of a potential exit? It is a really, really good question. Um, and the short answer is like trust. Uh, and we can't control everything. So if, if we had, and Postmates is a good example because a lot of what Postmates built hasn't been enduring and has been shut down post the Uber acquisition. I don't know exactly what's lived on and they definitely still have civic labs and there are some areas, but I know some of the programs that were initially started have kind of petered off. Um, it's another reason why we don't like necessarily investing in really small early stage startups that might be gobbled up by, by folks. But, um, you know, if you ingrain it into the culture of a business, there's so many, there's so much, um, value that it brings to your employee base. Um, Postmates actually, actually made a calculation. It was either 84, 80% of people part of the reason they stayed at Postmates was because of Civic Labs. And so there really, truly is tremendous value in in creating these impact programs, especially this new generation of millennials and Gen Zs. They, they want to work at companies that have purpose beyond themselves and purpose beyond the revenue that they're bringing in. Obviously, they're working at companies that can pay them a salary, but you know they want to feel like they're adding value in some way. And so um, from a employee retention um, perspective. It's, it's, it's almost like a no brainer that you, that you have something like this. And the good news is that these employees who care about this will spend, you know, their time helping to develop these products. And so they're going to, you know, again, it's, it's, it's like, might not work at a nonprofit, but you have extra time. You might want to spend a couple hours a week uh, giving back in some way. And that might look um, simply like, an engineer donating some of their time to creating a, a product. It's not part of their job description, but they feel, they feel passion around it. And so, um, you know, it's something to, that really engages uh, employees and it's a win-win situation for both the for-profit and nonprofit sides. Makes sense how that could provide some sort of staying power to those efforts. And um, you, you mentioned switching originally from earlier stage to now later stage. Can you talk about, maybe the basics of the types of companies that you're looking for right now? Yeah. Uh, we've, we've done a lot. We spent a lot of time kind of talking to companies from all stages, investing in a variety of ones. Um, and, and we're constantly learning. And so I'm sure if we did this call in, in another six months or a year, I would, I would have a slightly different viewpoint. Um, but in general, what we're looking for are, uh, at the, at the most basic level, level are, you know, pre-IPO companies, um, <clears throat> meaning they have to be private. They have to be, they're generally venture backed. Um, and so 
you know, we can't, we, everyone can invest in, in public companies, not everyone can invest in private companies. So that's kind of what we're trying to target with a, with a larger potential upside. Um, they, it helps if they have a chief of staff or um, some type of, you know, head of impact person to execute on this, on the founder's vision or on their vision of what an impact program might look like or what an impact partnership might look like. Um, we just found more success. What absolutely must be there is having strong founder buy-in. Uh, without that, it's it's really hard to get a program off the ground. And so that's kind of imperative that when we invest in companies, we really truly have the backing of, of the founder and the executive team. Um, some other basics, we need the ability to leverage what they're already good at. And so I think there's a lot of creative ways that companies can leverage their their existing resources or their talent pool or their assets or their products or the services. Um, but we really want to look for companies who who don't have the ability to like donate, you know, profit because they're not profitable or revenue because that's or uh, you know what they shouldn't be doing from a financially savvy perspective, but they have other assets that that can be leveraged for good for good use. Um, and uh, generally looking at kind of series B or C and above, because we want companies that, uh, you know, are de-risked from the perspective of they're not going to make it. So, um, you know, seed stage companies are going to be much higher risk of making it to a public domain versus a series B, C or D stage likelihood. Um, and they have, you know, more resources internally to kind of put towards this, this impact play. Um, and so for that reason, we've shifted a little bit, a little bit later stage. Um, but we never say never. We like there there's, it's such an interesting world in that there isn't a perfect partner. There's so many different types of partnerships that, that could and will work. And I, I'm just looking forward to kind of wrapping up this first fund and having, uh, our first full blown portfolio of, of of companies that are now participating in the impact realm and the kind of the case studies associated with those uh, and how they've proven how they can kind of become social entrepreneurs themselves. I'm excited to connect years down the road to see what the results of all these efforts are and of your portfolio. Thank you. So do you have a story of when you really saw how your work or the work of a portfolio company uh, could really affect change sort of a time you saw it? Yeah, um, we're working actually right now with one of our portfolio companies called BookNook. It's an ed tech company. Um, and interestingly, the founder came from the nonprofit space. So he was the CEO of uh, the nation's largest tutoring nonprofit and um, is so passionate about this space and increasing the outcomes and literacy rates of, of folks in the United States, but just wasn't feeling like he could get all of the the impact that he wanted to make done in the nonprofit space. So he actually started a for-profit business himself um, called BookNook. And so it's wonderful working with him because he, he really truly understands like the benefit of creating these partnerships and, and how there is, there is an absolute need for philanthropic and government dollars to solve some of our problems. But um, if we band together in the for-profit world, we can really kind of create outsized impact. So um, they're, they're, um, their tech is really focused on K through eight, but there are some 
there are some high schools that are uh, kind of in underserved communities that are interested in using this in the high school domain. They don't necessarily have the budget to pay for both the tech product as well as the tutoring that is necessary to implement this this technology and also uh, like run it for it to be successful. You need hands-on tutors um, to do kind of these small group learning sessions. Um, and they're really focused on literacy, a bit of math, but mainly literacy rates. Um, and so the the CEO, when we started talking, had already identified these interesting um, high schools in the Bay Area, but they just didn't have the the government or um, nonprofit budget to really delve in. And, and Booknook is a, you know, a, a fledgling, their Series B now, they can't afford to donate you know, their product and, and subsidize all of, all of this stuff. So we kind of put our heads together and the, I, the, um, the impact program that we're piloting in the fall, which I'm really excited about is one, um, where we've identified three schools that are going to pilot using this technology in their high school domain. So it allows us to get, get more data on the different types of communities and age groups that can actually use this technology. Booknook is going to, to donate their technology. Um, Rise, uh, the, the, comp, the schools are going to get small amounts of budget to pay for the necessary tutors, but they can't pay, they can't afford to pay for enough of them. And so Rise Together is going to kind of create, uh, is going to close that funding needs gap by donating uh, the rest of the necessary capital needed to, to fund those um, those tutors to implement this technology in some of these underperforming high schools. Um, I really love this because it's truly a blend of, uh, and a truly a partnership model where you have a for-profit donating what they're good at. You have these schools and using some of their government grants paying for things, but it's just not enough money there. So you need foundation or private capital to kind of close that funding gap. And this is where we're, we're kind of, um, we're working in, in partnership in three different domains. You've got government, you've got for-profit, you've got the nonprofit kind of fund, private foundation, uh, foundational capital all coming together to solve this need in a really beautiful partnership. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to, to roll that out and see that, how that comes about. But these are exactly the types of, of experiments that we want to help companies run uh, literacy rates are, are a huge problem across the world and we need to start getting a little bit more creative about how to solve them. And, and I'm hoping technology is a way that really allows us to, to kind of solve this problem a lot faster. Well, I'm sure it'll be really interesting to have a front row seat to that and the type of impact that it makes. Appreciate you sharing that. Um, I'm curious, is there any experience that stands out from your childhood that showed you the importance of giving back? I mean, honestly, no, I, I, um, I volunteered as a kid and I always saw that as important. My parents kind of, uh, you know, made sure that we were, um, volunteering our time as much as possible as little kids, but it wasn't really truly until I, I worked at Flexport, um, where I realized that, well, I guess it's, I worked at Flexport and then worked at other companies that weren't participating in the nonprofit domain in the same way where, it became so obvious that it is possible for these quote unquote Starbucks startups to, to give back. Um, 
in, in more creative ways that I think when people think about donations and giving back and philanthropy, they really think about dollar bills. Um, whereas there's so many other different types of ways to give back to communities um, in really impactful ways that have nothing to do with with donating dollars. Yeah, that's a really important for everyone, a uh, really important lesson for everyone to be aware of, both you know individuals and companies, and hopefully continues to be taken into account as people and businesses try to help others more. Yeah, exactly. So over the years, you know, you've had some really cool experiences. Um, has there been anyone that uh, stands out in particular that you've considered a mentor? No, not really. <laughs> I have, I've had lots of mentors from different parts of my life, but um, they're kind of like prescriptive to, uh, to whatever that career time in life is. Um, I wish I had better mentors. Yeah, let's say understood. that. I'm looking forward to continuing to, to find some more interesting mentors in this domain. This is a relatively new domain for me. So I've, I've met some like incredible, uh, incredible people who are, who come from the impact space and also who are working at these, um, working at, you know, either private companies or very newly post IPO companies that have meaningful impact arms. And they've really been, um, key to my learning about this area and how, how, how kind of like obvious it is that this should be, this should be something that, that companies start doing, um, at much earlier stages. And I think if we had this conversation in 20 years or when we have this conversation in 20 years, it's kind of going to be like how ESG was this random three letter word 20 years ago. And now it's, you know, part of people, almost everyone's vocabularies. And I, and I think corporate philanthropy and corporate social responsibility will be a word that isn't just, you know, reserved for these massive public companies, but it's a word that, you know, you see in, in pitch decks uh, for venture backed companies. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And this is the time at which if you'd like, you can ask me a question. Yes. The best part. Um, I'm kind of curious from, you've done so many of these interviews and these podcasts. I'm I'm really kind of curious, like, who is someone that you have interviewed that you think has really made an enduring impact in the nonprofit or philanthropic space or uh, asked differently, like, what's a really creative, a surprisingly creative approach that you've learned um, about attacking philanthropy um, if you don't have a ton of dollars? Yeah, interesting. I mean... Like you said, I've interviewed a lot of really awesome people, thankfully. And, um, you know, when people ask about the most impactful episode, uh, I mean, obviously, I love a lot of the guests I have, but I generally uh, gravitate toward uh, Alice Marie Johnson's episode. And uh, I mean, she's such an incredible woman, a force for good and force for positivity. And she realized in her process of getting out of prison how much telling a story could could really make an impact telling a, a heartfelt human story um and you know there's there's so many facts that are flying around and i think statistics can be really impactful but getting that human understanding is is vital to actually making change and so to see that you know since she's gotten out of prison at the time of our uh interview she had already gotten about 50 other people out that hadn't shouldn't have been in and 
to see what she's done with not a ton of resource, you know, not to mention the fact that she just dug right in right after spending over 20 years in jail. Um, I'm, she's probably most astounded by her. And I, I really love that she, with her work and taking action for good is highlighting the power of storytelling. I love it. I've listened to that one and it's one of my favorites. So thank you. I appreciate it. Um, all right. So we've gone through quite a bit. If everything were to end tomorrow, what would you be most proud of? Honestly, just uh, like trying to reframe or rethink how philanthropy can be done. I, I think right. it's, you know, it's, I'm relatively new to this, but I think that was beneficial because coming in with bright eyes, um, you know, I, I was, I wasn't loving what I was seeing. And so I think I'm most proud of kind of getting people thinking about ways that they can leverage what they're already good at to do good for the world. I think there, you know, there's a company called pledge 1% that's created a movement for early stage corporate social responsibility. And, and we're, we're on the same mission. Um, Pledge 1% is, is a movement, I would say, uh, that encourages companies to donate product, <coughs> excuse me, product time, profits, or equity. <coughs> and they've, you know, encouraged over, I think it's, you know, o o several billion dollars of philanthropy as a result of this quote unquote movement. And so if I can just get, and, and at some point we're going to have to figure out how to measure kind of like the the quote unquote impact of these programs that are that are being developed at these startups. But if this just results in a few conversations that people are having at a startup of, hey, like, what if we created this cool product that would maybe take six hours of engineering time to connect some of the people on our platform and and decrease uh, waste by, you know, improving health outcomes in some way. Like those, I'd be so excited to learn about just getting, have, the fact that people are thinking more creatively and opening up their minds of how they can actually um, create these kind of like no brainer solutions in my mind. They're not, none of these solutions are something yeah. that like rocks people's worlds as like, Oh my God, this is something I could never have thought about. It's just actually putting um, opening up your brain to the fact that startups can, can add value in it in the nonprofit domain or can add, can give back in their own way putting all of these little resources and pieces together just goes such a long way. And um, I think it's interesting to think about opening up the minds of those that don't realize the resources they have that they could leverage for good. Exactly. So the sort of macro question I ask everyone is if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? Um, I'm going to answer this from two different perspectives from like, uh, general partner at Rise Together Ventures, obviously snap my fingers and, you know, every single pre-IPO company would be, would have some type of impact program. And and when I say impact program, I think that scares people. An impact program can simply be just allowing every single person in your company to take one day off of work and, and volunteer at a, at a, you know, volunteer at a place of their choice, whether it's a, it's a, you know, an animal shelter or, a food bank, you know, the world is your oyster, go spend time uh, engaging with your community and also engaging with others at work. I think there's, there's so much to say of you might not overlap as a, as an operations person with an engineer, like this would, this would be a great way to, to kind of get your workers um, working in different ways and getting to know each other. Uh, and so from, 
from a, a rise together perspective, it would it would be every single startup has a has can point to something that they say that they're giving back. Um, from a from a mom's perspective, now that I'm a mother of two, um, I've I become acutely aware of the lack of support in uh, the pre K kind of school system, and I feel so so lucky that. I live near family and I'm able to afford proper care so I can, so I can do my work with Rise Together Ventures. But, um, I now, you know, kind of very much see the lack of affordable care for pre-K and how, how crazy important it is. You know, your kid's brain, 80% of your kid's brain develops by age three. And, and just like that one data point makes me think, you know, like this, how do we not have better solutions, uh, more affordable solutions for uh, for our children at the earlier ages? I think there's some really interesting things that are going to come out of both the for-profit and the nonprofit realm. Um, and obviously, this is a big discussion item on um, uh, from a political standpoint right now. But I I think that you know it's a it's something that other countries are much further ahead of us um, than the U.S. But something that's just so so important to make sure that you know kids are eating well and and have you know kind of safe environments where they're uh they're learning from and uh before they're heading kindergarten yeah that that's a really wonderful point and i think people may forget how important it is to invest in kids and they're our future um and you know myself having a two-year-old uh, it's certainly been on my mind lately and to hear that stat again, you know, about 80% developed at the age of three, it's just, it's crazy to think of how much better we could do as a society, uh, with early learning. And I'm curious, like, I don't know if you were a mother at the time, but if you are familiar with how the education system worked in the Netherlands and if they're doing anything in particular in the early side that you think's good. Yeah, they um. So childcare is a is abundant, um, and most folks, most judge folks, send their kid to preschool starting at age three months. Um, and so you know, Europe also has much longer uh, maternity, uh, and sorry, parental, not just maternity, but parental leaves. Um, the Netherlands is actually one of the shorter ones in Europe, but if you go to places like the UK or Germany, you have six months up to a year, um, to take off, uh. Part of it's paid by the company, part of it's paid by the government. And then you also have the ability to take off without getting paid, but you're guaranteed your job uh, when you return from from leave. Um, and from the Netherlands perspective, as I mentioned, it's it's pretty common to put your kid into daycare at three months. Um, there are daycares at every corner of the street. So it's, it's not hard. Like living in Santa Barbara, there's not a lot of places that actually serve your kid all day. There's a lot of quote-unquote preschools that might be three hours a three hours a day, um, which doesn't help a working mom, but from a, from a daycare perspective, meaning you can drop your kid off at seven 30 and pick them up again at five 30. There's not a ton of, um, of, of choices where at least where I'm from in, in the Netherlands, there's literally one on every corner. Um, and, uh, they do make it, uh, you know, it's not, it's not free from the government, but the, uh, it's, it's, um, affordable by, by most people's stakes. Another interesting thing about the Netherlands is, it's pretty common for um, for folk for parents to to work part time, plus they have after they have kids in order to 
um, kind of ease the cost of childcare for the first few years. And so it's common that parents will work four out of five days and alternate those days. And so if you think you have five, five working days, one parent takes off one day, the other parent takes off the second day. And then usually uh, one or two grandparents will cover other days. And so you really only need to, to send your kid to preschool uh, two or three days out of the week. So it's just, a, it's an interesting cultural difference that you don't see necessarily in the United States. I think there's also a different um, kind of uh, perspective on life that the Netherlands has that you, you just don't need much to survive. And so you're also not seeing a lot of Dutch people going out and spending money on fancy meals and, you know, lots of vacations. It's, uh, you know, we live in a house that, that fits our family. Um, and, you know, we eat at home most of the time and we go use the resources that are, that our country gave us and uh, enjoy the outdoors and they're happy. They're happy people. It's, it's ranked as like, you know, the kids in the Netherlands are ranked as the top happiest kids in the world. I, I don't remember the exact stat, but it's, it's definitely high up there. So they're doing something right. Yeah. Super interesting. Really appreciate you sharing and, you know, appreciate all the, the time you've given us today. And, um, it's been incredible listening to your story and love what you're doing with Rise Together Ventures. How can people listening support you and your impact? Great question. Uh, first of all, sign up to my newsletter so you can uh, learn as I go on this adventure. My newsletter is basically just sharing everything that I'm learning. And so I'm happy to pass on what I've been educated on by people who have donated their times to teaching me about um, what they're doing. Um, and I'm, I, I love talking to people in both the nonprofit and for-profit domains in, in about this. If you think you have a friend or a colleague or anyone who works in the impact space or um, is interested in starting some type of impact program at a for-profit company, I'm, uh, I'd love to talk to them to learn if we can support them in some way or if I can just kind of pass on the lessons that I've learned from talking to a variety of, of folks in this space. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'll be sure to include some of that info in the show notes. And uh, thanks so much for your time. Excited to see uh, how things evolve for you and your business. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com. I'm curious, did you decide to go to Amsterdam and that's when you found a job there or was it job first and like, will you move?